And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John, chapter 19. And uh, John's going to be in the second half of your Bible called the New Testament. And the New Testament starts with the book of Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. Right after that is, is the book of John. John chapter 19. And uh, if you're new to having a Bible, the, the big numbers are going to be the chapters, and the little numbers are going to be the verses. John chapter 19. All right, so behind me here is a, is a painting uh, from Antonio Cicero. You may have seen this painting before. Uh, he lived in the 1800s. It's considered to be his, his masterpiece. And it's titled uh, Ecce Homo, which is Latin uh, for Behold the Man. Behold the man, and I really wish that, um, that, that our system here could, could kind of show you this picture in all of its brightness and detail and colors. I'd advise you to look it up online. It's a very rich painting, lots of rich colors, and you can't really see them here. So I'm going to try to describe the painting to you and actually what's going on and some of the different characters uh, in, this, uh, in this scene. So in the painting, you're standing a little bit behind Governor Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And you're looking out into the courtyard that lies between the Roman headquarters, and then way down, further down, is, is the temple. And, uh, and you really wouldn't be able to see this probably unless you're close up or you're looking online again at a, at a picture with richer detail, but in the middle of the courtyard, there's a whole bunch of people. It's a mob of people. Now, on the, on the left, a little hard to see, but on the left, uh, there's a couple of Roman soldiers who've just participated in beating and mocking Jesus. And now they're standing there waiting for their next orders. Now, just to the right of Pilate, I'm talking about that guy right there. He's holding a a scroll, bearded guy with the scroll. Uh, He is a, a, a Greek philosopher. He's a learned man. He's a very wise man. He is ready to lend his advice to the governor in a very difficult situation. Standing, um, standing uh, in the far left-hand corner in white and green robes, and again, this one's, another one's going to be really, really hard to see, but it's this, this, I'm pointing at his feet right there, you follow up, and there's the guy right there. He, he, he's got white robes, and believe it or not, there, so there's also green there, but you can't really see that. That is a, a Roman official. He's leaning on the, on the chair, on the judgment seat there of, of Pilate. Uh, he's a Roman official. He's perhaps Pilate's uh, chief advisor and counselor. You see him leaning forward. He's listening intently to every word that Pilate is saying in order to make sure that the governor uh, deals with this, this situation in the most politically astute way. Now, for me, the most tragic figure in the painting is not Christ. Christ is not a tragic figure, and I hope you've been getting the point of that over the past several sermons. He's actually a triumphant king. For me, the most tragic and most unsettling figure actually is Pilate's wife, this woman right here. And, uh, and she is standing there, her, her eyes, her, her back is to Pilate, her, her eyes are, are downcast, and, and, and she is clearly troubled, she is deeply troubled, uh, as if more than anyone else on the balcony, she feels the gravity of the moment and the wrongness of the moment, but she's powerless to stop where this is going. And right next to her is, is a handmaiden or, or a friend or a servant, and she's looking like she's trying to provide uh, some comfort to Pilate's wife in this very horrifying moment. And of course, we see uh, uh, Jesus standing there, stripped down. He's got the painful crown of thorns on his head. He's patiently waiting for what only he knows for certain is coming. And then standing in the middle of the whirlwind, he's the easiest one to see with the, with the white robes there. He's facing the mob in the courtyard. That is Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. And he is speaking, he's shouting to the Jewish leaders. And, 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 um, and again, it's probably hard to notice uh, where you're sitting from, but um, you can see on the roof of the, of the, of the temple up there, some figures there. There's some, it uh, looks like there's uh, Jewish leaders. They've gone up to the roof and they are standing there attempting to stir up the crowd against Jesus, kind of whipping them up into a mob action, a, a frenzy. And Pilate, having had, uh, just had Jesus beaten, gestures, gestures back now to Jesus, and he says to the crowd, behold the man. What, what do you want me to do with him now? 
And here in this scene, the fate of the universe hangs in the balance. And it is to this powerfully dramatic moment that we turn our attention to this morning. Let's go ahead and read about it right now. Why don't you stand with me? We stand at Harbin's church out of honor and reverence for the Word of God. It's a way of reminding us that the words on this page have the same authority as if Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh speaking words to you. It's John chapter 19. We're going to start at verse 1 and read on down through the, uh, the first half of verse 16. God's Word says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him up yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is your holy and inspired word. We recognize that it is infallible, it is without error, and we recognize that that this word is God-breathed, that your spirit speaks through the word, your spirit speaks through the word to us this morning, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit has to say to Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning through your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So how did we get to this point? Well, Jesus' enemies, the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the high priests, these sought to destroy Jesus because he was a threat to their power, to their position, to their way of life, and they were envious of Jesus. They, they managed to get Jesus arrested. They've conducted an illegal mock trial. We've already talked about that. And they condemned Jesus to death because Jesus claims to be the Christ, God's anointed king. And he even claims to be God himself, which will get you the death penalty in first century Judaism. So they dragged Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to get him to approve of Jesus' execution. Because the Jews at this point in history uh, can't do capital punishment. The Romans have taken away that right from them, and so they need to go through the Roman authorities to to do that, at least to do it legally. So they bring him to, to Pilate, and as we saw last week, Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus, 
and he wants to release Jesus. But to protect his standing with the people, he wants to manipulate the Jews into condoning Jesus' release. And so Pilate gives them a choice. Pilate can either release Jesus, who is an innocent man, a man of God, a man who has done nothing wrong, or Barabbas, a violent robber and a murderer, a dangerous criminal, and to Pilate's dismay, the people chose to release Barabbas and condemn Jesus to death. That's where we left off last week. Let's pick it up now in verse 1. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is a, this is a beating. It's, a, it's, it's um, an unpleasant experience. It's not, it's not on the same level as the heavy beating that he's, a, he's going to get. <clears throat> There's a pre-crucifixion beating that's coming that's even worse. But this one is bad enough. Now, this is really strange that Pilate would order Jesus to be flogged. Because if Pilate knows that Jesus is not guilty, then why do this? Well, it's all part of Pilate's strategy. He believes Jesus is innocent, but if he releases Jesus on his own authority, the people in their agitation may get out of control, word may get back to Caesar, and Pilate is out of a job, maybe out of his head, like as in decapitation. So, if Pilate were a man of courage, if Pilate were a man of conviction, if he were a man of true justice, he would have never allowed the brutalization of a man that he knows is innocent. How selfish and how wicked and how cruel this is of Pilate. He cares more about his own position than about doing what is right. So, Pilate orders Jesus to be flogged and beaten. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Now, the crown of thorns was probably twisted uh, together from the long spikes of a date palm, which could be up to 12 inches long. And this crown now is rammed, thrust down on Jesus' head, the spikes piercing his scalp, his flesh, blood likely gushing from his head and spilling down his face. And this is done out of mockery. They're making fun of Jesus. Jesus claims to be a king. Let's make him a crown. This will be funny. Let's give him a robe. And then the mockery continues in verse 3. They come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they strike him with their hands. Over and over again, the, the, the tense of the Greek, uh, the verb in the Greek language suggests repeated blows to Jesus, punch after punch after punch after punch after punch. We learn from another gospel account, they, they take, a, take a, a rod, a, a scepter, again, part of the mockery here, and they're, they're beating him with that. And so you're reading this, and you are left thinking, Pilate, what are you doing, Pilate? You know he's innocent, Pilate. Stop this madness. And Pilate thinks he is so clever. We talked about this a little last week. He thought he was clever in chapter 18 by giving the people an opportunity to pick Jesus over Barabbas, but of course that didn't work. And of course Pilate has been uh, constantly trying to shove responsibility of of Jesus for Jesus off onto somebody else, and, and the responsibility keeps coming right back in his face now. But Pilate's not done trying to outwit the Jews. And so he hopes that this beating, this mockery, this flogging will appease the crowd. He's hoping that them seeing Jesus bloodied and bruised and disheveled will satisfy their bloodlust. Look at verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Excuse me, Pilate? You find no guilt in him? But now you're going to humiliate him even further by, by, by dragging this man out that you have punished like a criminal as a demonstration that he's not guilty? Really, Pilate? Where's the sense in this, Pilate? Where's your courage, Pilate? Text goes on, says, 
So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! It's Pilate's way of saying, Here's the man that you are so afraid of. Look at this pathetic wretch. Do you really think that he's a threat to anyone? He is humiliating Jesus, and he is mocking the Jews at the same time. The Pilate strategy backfires. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. It's almost like they're sharks, and they've caught the scent of blood, and now they want more. If we are surprised by this hatred towards Jesus, it means that we haven't followed the gospel of John closely enough. Uh, Jesus has already told us about the attitude of the world towards himself, hasn't he? Uh, Turn back with me to chapter 15. Turn a couple pages back. Chapter 15. And here, Jesus tells his disciples up front about the hostility that they're going to face in the world, but he also tells them, don't take it personal. It's ultimately not about you. Chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in John 19, in essence, we have the world represented by both Jews and Gentiles united in their hatred for Jesus. It's not just that the religious leaders hate Jesus, but Pilate hates Jesus also. It's just that that hatred comes out in a different way. Now, why this hatred towards Jesus? Turn back to John 7. John 7. And here, Jesus is talking to his brothers, and his brothers are not yet believers at this point. And look at what he says in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7. It says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. There you have it. That's the bottom line. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. This is why people then and now hate Jesus. We love our sin. We love our rebellion against God. We are enjoying ourselves, and then this Jesus has to come along and mess it all up. Jesus comes along and tells me that how I am living my life is wrong. Jesus comes along and tells me that unless I repent, unless I return, turn away from my life to follow after Christ, I will perish in hell. Now, who does Jesus think he is saying stuff like that? God or something? The answer is yes. But it's not the kind of God that we want And that's why the world rejects him. And the enemies of Jesus betray this sentiment in verse 7, going back to chapter uh, 19. After Pilate says in verse 6, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. Jesus' opponents rightfully recognize that when Jesus talks this way, when he calls himself God's son, the overtones are not just messianic. They are. But how Jesus has been using this phrase extends beyond that and into sharing rights and authority with God himself. In essence, Jesus has been declaring himself to be equal with God. And it's not that Jesus' enemies don't believe in God. It's just that When Jesus reveals himself as God, they see God for who he really is and not who they want him to be, and then they hate him. They hate what they see. And that is repeated every day, over and over and over again, all over the world when people discover who God really is as revealed in Jesus Christ. They thought, that they, they, they thought they knew who God was and what he was like. And then when they understand everything about Jesus and what he says and what he has revealed, all of a the sudden, they're, I don't want that. That's not the kind of God that I want. Jesus himself says that whoever hates me hates my Father also. Because if you have seen Jesus, John 14, you have seen the Father. And because God is not who they want Him to be, 
They create a God more to their liking, a God that they can stomach, a God who is not like this man, not like Jesus. And their sin is so self-deceptive that they don't even think that they're recreating God in their own image. They think that they are standing up for the one true God. I don't care if it's uh, uh, Islam or Mormonism. There are examples of this kind of idolatry all over the world every day as people are reshaping God into an image that is different than Jesus because they cannot handle Jesus in all of His fullness. Reshaping God, perhaps even reshaping Jesus into something that they can stomach. So, for example, we don't like the idea of hell that, like, offends us, and so, ta-da, we do a little magic trick, and we pull a God out of our hat that has no place for hell. Uh, We'll we'll create a, a Jesus who doesn't talk about wrath, never mind that He talks about it more than pretty much anybody else. We don't like the idea of a God who does not give us sexual autonomy. And so, abracadabra, wave the wand, boom! We create a Jesus who is all for premarital sex or gay marriage because, hey, he's all about love. Never mind the fact that Jesus said, have you not read in Genesis chapter 3 that God made them male and female and they became one flesh? This rejection of Jesus, this rejection of God that we see in John chapter 19, that we see in our own lives today is really a a replay of Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? We are simply following in the footsteps of our forefather Adam, who in the Garden of Eden did not like the idea of a God who gave people boundaries, a God who said, I will determine what is right and what is wrong for you. I will determine what is good and what is evil. And Adam said, no, you don't determine it, I do. And he turns against the God who loves him so much. And and the sad irony is is that the boundaries that God gives for us, whether whether, whether it is in the sexual realm or whether it's uh, uh, realms of how we conduct business or whether it's uh, about truth-telling or, or anger, all these things that the, that the Scriptures tell us about and, and urge us to move in that direction, all of those things, those boundaries that God sets up for us, actually are for our own good and for our, 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 our ultimate joy as we find our joy and contentment and satisfaction in Christ and what He offers as opposed to other things. And so now the Jewish leaders here are are going the same way. They are confronted by a God that they cannot stand, and they turn away from the God who loves them, and they want Him crucified. And oh, how crucifixion plays into the hands of the Jewish leaders. You know, the typical method of execution in the Jewish world was stoning. But if you are Caiaphas, if you are Annas, the ringleaders of this plot against Jesus, there would be no better way for Jesus to die than by crucifixion. Now, why is that? Because in Judaism, being crucified, being hung on a tree was associated with the curse of God. And so, if you are Caiaphas, if you're Annas, if you're the religious leaders, this is awesome. This is terrific. This is providential, they would think. The the Jewish leaders have been so upset because multitudes and multitudes of people have been turning away from them and towards Jesus. They've been believing in Jesus, but if Jesus hung on a tree, if He is crucified, everyone in Israel will know that Jesus was cursed by God that Jesus was abandoned by God. It would prove that Jesus' enemies were right, Jesus was wrong, and when the Jewish people see this, they will be horrified and scandalized, and who is going to want to follow a man who has clearly been cursed and abandoned by God? That would be their logic. So, this plays brilliantly into the hands of the Jewish leaders. 
That's what I'm thinking. If I'm Caiaphas, I'm thinking this is better than stoning. This is better than a beheading. Let's go all the way and have this man hung on a tree so the whole world can see him as a curse. There is no better way to discredit Jesus to Israel than that. Because no one in their right mind is going to follow a crucified man. Now, the hatred of the world for Jesus is not just made manifest in the vehement animosity of the religious leaders. Hatred for Jesus is also seen in people who, at least on the surface, think well of Jesus, but when push comes to shove, they will throw Jesus under the bus to achieve something that is a greater priority than Jesus. And that attitude is exhibited here in Pontius Pilate. And that attitude is exhibited uh, in America. It's probably the most common form of hatred towards Jesus. Thinking well of Jesus to a degree, but certainly not well enough to follow him as Lord. That is hatred and rejection of Jesus Christ. Pilate already, I think, based on what we saw in chapter 18, he already perceives that there is something unusual about this man. And what is more, there's something else on Pilate's mind. Now, John doesn't tell us this in his book, but the book of Matthew tells us this. During this whole affair, Pilate receives a message from his wife. Do you know this? That Pilate's wife has a little role to play in this drama as well. Pilate receives a message from his wife. It says this, listen to this, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. She had a nightmare involving Jesus. Now, the Romans, they put a lot of stock in dreams and viewed them as omens, so that would have gotten her attention. And it's easy to, rem- to imagine that Pilate himself is growing in- increasingly troubled, increasingly uh, disturbed, but what happens next, I think, rattles him even more. And when the Jews cry out for Jesus' death because he has made himself the Son of God, look at Pilate's reaction in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He was afraid already. But now he's hearing this business about Jesus saying he's the Son of God, and he is more rattled. He is more afraid. This has an incredible effect on Pilate. There was in the, in the Roman mindset this idea of divine men, extraordinary men who were the offspring of the gods, who had special powers. You can imagine now Pilate coming from that worldview, coming from that religious background. Now he's hearing talk about Jesus being the Son of God. You can imagine how this is going to affect Pilate. Pilate must wonder with dread, what in the world am I dealing with? You you can sense, as you're reading this, the increased tension. And you can sense that Pilate, while not fully grasping the situation, he's, he, he gets the slightest inklings, the growing sense of suspicion that in Jesus, he is dealing with something more than meets the eye. And you get that sense in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? You can sense this, this new level of anxiety, this new level of concern and urgency from Pilate. Where are you from? Who are you anyway? Now, he already said, Jesus already said in the last chapter that his kingdom is not of this world. Now look at verse 9. Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate thinks that he is so powerful. 
Pilate believes himself to be a man of significance and influence. But Jesus turns to him and puts Pilate in his place. Any power, any authority that Pilate has is because of God. Caesar is not in control. The might of imperial Rome is not in charge. Instead, Caesar and Rome, uh, the Jewish leaders, and Pontius Pilate himself cannot lift a finger without God permitting it. And Jesus faces his trial with regal calm and steady confidence because he knows that he is ultimately not in Pilate's hands. And he knows that he is ultimately not in the hands of the Jews. Ultimately, Jesus is in the hands of his loving Father who reigns. Well, Pilate backs down after Jesus replies and seems not only more certain of Jesus' innocence, but he also seems to be further impressed by Jesus. In verse 12, it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. This power play between Pilate and the Jews has been going back and forth now for a while, as, as each side tries to get their own way. But the advantage is slowly tipping towards the Jewish leaders, and sensing that they are near victory, they play their best card. Look at what they say next. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is the moment of truth for Pilate. He's been somewhat sympathetic of Jesus. He's been somewhat in awe of Jesus. He's certainly been impressed by Jesus' character. He's struck by the innocence of Jesus, and even in a twisted kind of way, stands up for Jesus. But it is in this moment when we find out who and what Pilate really loves what Pilate really cherishes, what Pilate really treasures. Gospel of Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders have whipped up the crowd into such a frenzy that a riot is about to break forth. And so here is now the crux of Pilate's choice, of Pilate's dilemma. It is the, the, the dilemma that all of us face when we are confronted by Jesus. It is the choice that Pilate has tried to put off over and over again. He's been trying to put off this choice since chapter 18. Pilate wants to have his cake and eat it too, in a sense. There is something about Jesus that impresses him. There's no doubt about that. He is convinced of Jesus' innocence, there's a, there's, a, there's a fear, almost a reverential fear he has about this man. He would love to be able to release Jesus while at the same time protecting his own hide, his own job, his own position with Rome and Caesar, his own life. So you've got these, these, these tensions here that are, that are tugging at Pilate. The compellingness, is that a word? The, the compelling nature of Jesus and who he is and what he's been saying, and how he's revealing himself, that's tugging at Pilate on one hand. And on the other hand, you have all the other things in this world that concern Pilate and all the other things that he really wants. There's warfare going on in his soul. And he's been trying to put off this choice, but he can't put it off anymore. And you can't put it off either. You can't be on the fence about Jesus. You have to take your stand with Jesus, or you have to take the stand, your stand with the world that hates Jesus. There, there is no neutrality. There is no middle ground. There is no comfortable option. There is no safe option. Last week, we saw the Jews, they were faced with a choice. They could choose Jesus, a man of God, or Barabbas, a man of the world, and they chose Barabbas, and now it's Pilate's turn to decide, will it be Jesus or will it be Caesar? Will it be truth? Remember in the last chapter, Jesus said everyone who is on the side of truth listens to him. Indeed, Jesus in chapter 14, he calls himself the truth. And in John 8, Jesus says the truth will set you free. Will it be the truth that leads to freedom and life? Or will it be the lies of this world? 
lies that whisper in our ears telling us that what matters most is our careers, our physical safety, our, our personal and temporal aspirations, our power, our reputation, things that if we put our hope in those things lead in the end to bondage, spiritual bondage, and death. What will you decide? The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, in those words, that's a threat. (laughs) A threat is in those words. In other words, if you let this man go, Pilate, this man who calls himself king, we're 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 gonna tell on you. We're gonna snitch on you. We're gonna make sure that Caesar, king of the empire, hears about it. And by the way, Emperor Tiberius had a reputation for acting swiftly and decisively when suspicions were cast on the conduct of uh, his underlings. And it is in that moment when Pilate makes his choice. Verse 16, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And in that moment, we see both Jew and Gentile finally cast away Jesus once and for all. For these Jewish leaders... The apostasy is complete. We have no king but Caesar. Oh, how those words must have cut the Lord to the heart. For it was in the heart of God from the very beginning to be the benevolent, loving, shepherd king of his people. And the Jews had waited so long for God to send his king, to send his Messiah, to send this this special anointed ruler to rule over them. And when he finally comes, the people are like, forget that. I don't want it. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Now, let's be honest here. How do the Jews really feel about Caesar? I mean, they they are really painting themselves as really loyal subjects, aren't they? They're trying to make Pilate seem like he's like the traitor, and, and they're like the awesome ones, patriotic for Rome. Give me a break. You can see through this, can't you? The Jews hate Caesar. The Jews hate the Romans. I mean, for crying out loud, just a week ago, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, they're waving palm branches, which is like waving the national flag of Israel, saying, that's the king. Save us, king. They hate Caesar. But they're putting on a show here. They're mouthing these words to push Pilate. But as we've seen several times in John's gospel, when people speak, they often speak far better than they know. When they say they have no king but Caesar, it is dreadfully and tragically true because they have rejected their one rightful true king. How sad it is, from their own lips, they have confessed what was really in their heart all along. Is that not how John opens his gospel in the very first chapter? In chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And what about Pilate? In the end, Pilate loved and treasured and valued the world more than he did Jesus. That's the bottom, that is the bottom line. And many, many people are like Pilate. Maybe even someone in this room is like Pilate. If, it, if it's you, I pray that the Holy Spirit would, would convict you to the heart right now and help you to see that. People like Pilate who are impressed by Jesus... They have a a measure of admiration about certain qualities and characteristics about Jesus. They may even affirm Jesus as someone who's perfectly innocent and, and good and may even give a nod to his divine origins. But in the end, the cares and the concerns of this world 
supersede any surface sympathies they may have for Christ. And when push comes to shove, in the moment of truth, when the rubber hits the road, so to speak, they demonstrate that beneath that surface sympathy, there is at the core really a lovelessness for Jesus. And so in the end, like Pilate, like the Jewish leaders, they turn around and they turn away from him and they reject him for something else that they think is better. That, by the way, is, is Genesis 3 in the garden, replayed over and over and over again. And the cost of standing with Jesus was too high a price for Pilate to pay. And Pilate, Pilate wasn't even looking to follow Jesus. He was just looking to release him. And, but, but he wasn't even willing to pay that price, to the, 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 the price that would come with releasing him. So if there's a cost for Pilate, how much more is there a cost for the one who wants to become a Christian? For the one who believes in Jesus and wants to follow Jesus, friends, if you're contemplating following the Lord Jesus, there is a cost, and you've got to determine if Jesus is worth the cost. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's tough language, isn't it? Some of you are wondering, did, did I just hear that right, that Jesus is talking about hating people in your family? What was, what was that about? When Jesus says you must hate your family and your life, Jesus is not saying don't love your family. Yes, you love your family. You better. I hope you do. But hear how Jesus is using that, that the term hate, hating, it's a Semitic expression meaning loving less. In other words, you must love these other things less than me. Jesus' point in all of this is that to be my disciple, I must be supreme in your life. Yes, you love your family, but don't place your family above me. Yes, you love your life, but you don't place your life above me. Yes, you can love your career, but not above me. I take supremacy and priority over everything else in your life. Everything else in your life is to revolve around me and not the other way around, and you must have an attitude of surrender towards me where you're even willing to let go and renounce anything that is keeping, you, keeping me from being supreme in your life. And so the challenge before us is to answer the question, is Jesus worth that cost? And if you say, well, he's not worth that cost, you're actually in the majority. If you like being in the majority, don't be a Christian. And the genuine Christian, while not perfect in this sense, okay, not perfect by any means in this sense, far from perfect. Nevertheless, the Christian is a person who is learning and growing towards that kind of life and recognizes that that is the trajectory that his life is supposed to be on, where I am decreasing more and he is increasing more. And again, we don't do that perfectly this side of heaven. But it is about a new direction of life. That's what repentance is. And so for many people, the price to pay is too high. If you're here this morning and you feel like it's too high a price to pay, what it means is, is that you do not fully realize that what you get in Jesus and life with Jesus far outweighs anything that you might lose to be his disciple. And I pray that you would recognize the value of Jesus that he is worth any price that you might pay, whether it is friends, whether it is money, whatever you, know, whatever you might lose in the process of being a disciple. I, I don't know. I, I have no idea your situation. But there's always some sort of, uh, of price. In some countries, it is a monetary situation where they could lose their very jobs if they become, if they become a Christian. You're seeing little inklings of that even here in this culture. But then there's other places you could even lose your life. Certainly you'll get picked on in school. Is that, a, is that a price you're willing to pay? Is Jesus that valuable? 
You make the call. It's your life. Now, as dark as the hatred of both Jew and Gentile towards Christ is in this chapter, here's the encouraging thing. The darkness is pierced by the blinding light of the overwhelming, unfathomable love of Jesus. Consider why Jesus endures all of this. Jesus doesn't have to put up with this nonsense. Jesus doesn't have to live with this hatred and injustice, the crown of thorns being beat up, spit upon, people pulling, t- pulling hairs out of his beard, all this, and all the mess that's about to happen to him, that's even worse. Remember, this is the same Jesus who in chapter 18, who with but a word knocked flat hundreds of Roman soldiers. That's the same Jesus that we see in chapter 19, who allows himself to be beaten to a bloody pulp by Roman soldiers. This all-powerful, almighty Jesus is the same Jesus who now in verse 16 is willing to be led away like a lamb to the slaughter to be crucified. And and you know that he can stop it. And he doesn't. Why is that? The reason why is Deuteronomy 21-23. That says, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You see, if Caiaphas and the ringleaders of this Jewish mob, if they're thinking, well, this is awesome. Uh, this, This hanging of Jesus on a tree will prove that Jesus is under the curse of God. Jesus is thinking, yeah, precisely. That's why I came. I came to be cursed for you because I love you. And I want to save you. And I want to glorify my Father in that salvation. Long ago, when our forefather Adam sinned in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, how did God respond? He responded with judgment, with a curse upon Adam and his posterity. That's like all of us. A curse that left you and I in slavery to sin. A curse that sent Adam and Eve into exile from God's wonderful presence and and left all of their descendants relationally separated from God. A curse that ends in physical death in this age and leads to eternal spiritual destruction in hell forever. That's like the ultimate exile, the ultimate banishment. And just as the one man, Adam, brought his people into the curse... The one man, Jesus, comes now to deliver people from the curse. That was why Jesus came. That was his mission. That was his goal. That was his plan all along. Christ has come to take the weight of the curse off of the shoulders of sinners like us and carry it on his shoulders. And we see signs of this in this chapter, even before he's nailed to a cross. At the beginning of the chapter, as Jesus is beaten and mocked, what's pressed down on his head? A crown of? Crown of thorns. When you go back to Genesis 3, read about the curse. What's one of the aspects of that curse? Thorns and thistles that frustrates man's attempt to work the ground and hear and Jesus' sufferings as he is being mocked and beaten by the soldiers when that painful crown of thorns is thrust onto his head is as if God is signaling something. He is reminding us that that Genesis 3 curse. He's reminding us of that and he is signaling to us that Jesus is, is bearing the curse on his own head. And when Jesus is being led away to Golgotha to be crucified, he's being led away to bear the fullness of God's curse in our place. The Apostle Paul writes in uh, in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And on the cross, Jesus suffers the fullness of that curse. He suffers pain. He suffers exile from the presence of God. He suffers God's wrath. He suffers unto death. And if you believe in Christ, if you trust in this man, then his sufferings count for you. He has borne the curse for you, so you don't have to bear it yourself. That's glorious news. 
I mean, if you're thinking, man, Deemer, a lot of what you've had to say today has been a real downer. I'm, I'm looking for something good. There's nothing better than what I've just told you. What I've just told you is, is far exceeds the, the darkness of anything else we've, ever, we've talked about this morning. He suffers the fullness of that curse. And if the curse is removed from your shoulders as you trust in him, that means you're no longer in exile from God. You are reconciled to him. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You are free to serve the living God. You are no longer under the power of death because, because Jesus didn't just bear the curse for you on the cross, but he also conquered death on your behalf by raising from the dead, and likewise, all of his people can expect a glorious resurrection like his and can expect heaven with God as opposed to eternal exile in hell. Because your ultimate destiny, those things become your ultimate destiny, you are now forgiven, you are now free if you trust in him. We are closing in on the end of this. You've been very patient and I'm grateful for that. Yes, a hung Jesus would manifest the curse of God upon Jesus. But what his enemies didn't realize is that Jesus was cursed by God not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. And the other thing that they didn't realize is that Jesus hanging on a tree would actually have the opposite effect on the world uh, if, if they thought that the scandal of a cursed, crucified Messiah would, would just repel everybody, they could not have been more mistaken because Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And that, that doesn't mean that every single person is going to be saved, but it means that people from every tribe and tongue and language from every corner of the earth, there's gonna be people all over the place that when they see the banner of the cross lifted high, they're going to come to it and find freedom and forgiveness and salvation. The Jewish leaders could not have been more wrong. Boy, was that an epic fail on their part. They just didn't get it. They didn't get the genius of what God was doing in that moment. And so in John 19, when things seem darkest from one angle, from another angle, we can clearly see that Jesus has the forces of evil exactly where he wants them. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, it's checkmate, and nothing has been out of control. God is seated on the throne. He is in charge. Jesus wins, and so do all those who trust in him. So, will you be among those who trust him? Will you be counted among those who, seeing Jesus high and lifted up on a cross, will you come to that cross laying your sins down, laying down your burdens, laying down the curse that weighed you down, laying it down at the foot of the cross? Pilate did not believe that having Jesus was worth infinitely more than all of the, the treasures and pleasures of this world. What about you? What do you think? What will you decide? Behold the man. Behold your king. Behold your curse-bearing, crucified, resurrected Savior and Lord. Now, what will you do with him? Let's pray.